In the world of tech, there's nothing that gets discussed more than reliability. But when we dig into this technical topic, we find the concepts are much more fundamental. On this weekly podcast, we dig into how the concepts of reliability impact every aspect of our lives. Welcome to the Reliability Room. I'm your host, Emily Arnott, Community Manager here at Blameless. Welcome back. I'm Emily, as always, the community manager here at Blameless, and I've invited for a second episode our guest Leo from Catchpoint. So last episode, we talked uh, a little bit about the findings in the latest Catchpoint SRE report. But in this episode, I wanted to kind of take a look at kind of on a meta layer, the reliability of putting together a report like this. Uh, You're in your third year now of reporting on the kind of current culture in SRE, At the heart of this is a big survey that goes out to SRE practitioners, managers, a wide range of roles. Um, We talked a little bit now about how you're kind of slicing into this and looking at how responses vary across ranks. And that really got me thinking. I'm sure the variety of responses you receive is pretty wide, especially for the more open-ended questions. And I was just kind of curious, like, how do you tailor questions to get kind of this full diversity of responses while still being able to make meaningful statistical conclusions. Goodness gracious. That's a big one. Qualitative, quantitative question is one that uh, haunts us at every turn. So <laughs> I'm not looking for, you know, a, a solution that'll last forever, but I'm curious. <laughs> there are a couple of thoughts that, that come to mind. <laughs> whether they will actually be deemed in the ears of our listeners as answering the question or not, we'll have to, uh, we'll have to see. But first it kind of starts with, you know, why, why do we do this? So there's obviously an element of doing these types of activities for the company or the organization you work for, whether you're profit, not for profit, et cetera. But then there's also kind of the personal reputation of, of trying to do something that is sincere, has some integrity and the desire to want to become associated with such a thing. For me, it's it's kind of the latter, right? The personal mm. reputation ought to be associated with something sincere and something mm-hmm. with integrity. The other piece is going to have to do with, you know, we don't explicitly say it in the report. We try to research a new or relatively new emerging topic. So this year we kind of looked at the concept of uh, total experience approaches last year was kind of this the research topic was a uh, platform operations mm-hmm. but then the other part kind of the distinguished part of the report because this report um, outside of google themselves probably this is we believe to be the longest running kind of sre dedicated mm-hmm. our research of this kind is is this distinguished uh benchmarking data so questions like how much simply asking plainly and simply, which kind of speaks to the first part of your question is simply asking how much of your work do you consider toil? How much mm. time is spent on call? How much of your time is spent exclusively on developing development activities versus operational uh, activities? But now kind of getting into the heart of it is one of the reasons I was excited to work with, with, with blameless this year's is so this report, I'm a former practitioner. The people at Blameless were who, who we partnered with current practitioners. And, you know, we had the first year was tough 
because you know you'd never done it before you weren't known for it and so trying to reach out to people like hey we're, we're writing a survey do you want to give feedback on the questions or hey um are there any particular research topics to explore this year versus the next year you get a little more attention you mm-hmm. get one or two more responses the following year you get a couple more responses and it gets a little easier the more you kind of start to become known for this thing and then you shape the questions like what value do you get from incident management Mm. you know medium high and then somebody's like oh you you need to also put an unsure option Mm -hmm. you need to put a not applicable option so there were some what's the word there like mechanical parts Mm -hmm. of the survey that i was like I never would have thought about that, right? It's like when you're writing it versus when someone's reading yeah. it. Yeah, there's a whole science to it, yeah. For people who maybe zoned out a little bit, um, I want to kind of bring you back in because what I'm about to say now is probably one of the most important aspects of this year's report, <laughs> which has been bugging me for some time, not, not for this report, but just pieces of research in general, is they ask questions like, what's your biggest challenge? And this Mm. is just simple. What's your biggest challenge? And they give five or six radio buttons that you can select from Mm -hmm. communication and collaboration, not enough money, lack of support. And I was like, I did that last year. Yeah. Lack of visibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I did that last year. And it just felt like people were just checking boxes and i was like why don't we just ask it as an open-ended question and then we'll do a human intelligence factor analysis (laughs) and that is most undoubtedly most certainly going to let people type in anything they want so that there's no possible way they could misread the question. Right, right. In my opinion, asking people what are the challenges is probably the single most in question in the survey. Mm-hmm. Again, we're sharing secrets here. It's like people are going to, other people who are listening to this are like, well, I need to like get these practices for, for my own surveys or my own reports. But we didn't want to make such a huge transition from a question with five multiple choice answers to a question that was completely open-ended. Yeah, just a text box. <laughs> Whatever you feel. Yeah, yeah. So the the idea, which I thought was was clever, was ask the question, what is the number one challenge hindering successful reliability implementations? Parenthesis consider short succinct answers Mm. like loss of visibility business value hard to realize complexity of architectures i think there were one or two more and that way people get an idea of what you're looking for Mm -hmm. and as we started to go and parse the data the other thought that we had was when we write the report Let's also highlight those anchor buyer answers, uh, anchor bias answers, right? The ones that were put in parentheses, so people could then see which ones were from the anchor bias mm-hmm. versus which ones were their own. And it actually turned out to be an extremely amazing find because even though talent was not an anchor bias 
selection at all, it actually turned out to be the number one challenge. That was the most common one. Yeah. Most common one. And hopefully, I hope everyone had a chance to listen to our first episode. And if not, I kindly suggest you go back and do so now where we talk about the tool sprawl one. But tool sprawl was an anchor bias Mm -hmm. answer, Mm -hmm. but it's still ranked way lower when we parsed and categorized the lists, you know, kind of, which is the other point I wanted to make about the resiliency and the reliability of the survey is you always have to make sure you kind of sort of ask the same question in at least two different ways. Mm -hmm. So if somebody does kind of quote unquote challenge you right on the surface level, you have no, we asked it in two different ways and we, drew the two same conclusions in this case. Mm-hmm. In this example, tools brawl was was not really a problem as everyone had been led to believe year over year. So that's good. Service science. <laughs> yeah. That's very, very encouraging because you know it, it really speaks to the fact that people do thoughtfully fill this out and they do give it some consideration. Cause I don't know if you know the book uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. It talks a lot about biases. It talks a lot about how when people are pulled for their opinion, it's drastically dragged away by like things they've recently read or something they can see while they're answering. So to have something that overcomes that, that anchor bias of having suggestions is uh, a really great sign that, yeah, you're actually getting meaningful, thoughtful response. <laughs> I do know that book because I received it as a gift last year. Oh, excellent. Literally about one year ago. It's a very <laughs> fascinating read. I, I I really recommend it. Yeah, I, I think uh, this really speaks to um, the resilience of survey science, <laughs> of getting meaningful data when you just kind of send a questionnaire out into the world. Overlaps a lot with what we think of as like kind of SRE principles. I used to have an old blog where I would just, here's here's a crazy chart I came up with. So I'm a big web performance data analysis, right? And it's like, but it, one thing was like, if we, could potentially assume that people who might be listening know that relying heavily on an average or central tendency, right, can be wholly misleading. And it's mm. just like, you know, every company in the world is 42% making giblets instead of joblets. Versus mm-hmm. like, you know, 42%, oh my God, you know, it's like, <laughs> you'll notice if you haven't read the report, then please do. And if you do, you'll, you'll refer back to these comments. Here we'll back. link it in the description too. <laughs> when, we, um, when we ask questions like how much of your work do you consider to be toil or what percent of your work is exclusively on, excuse me, spent exclusively on engineering activities, you could easily just take the average and be like, oh, everyone spends an average of 42% uh, exclusively on engineering activities. And to your, the essence of this question about resilient and what we learn from writing these things is like, it's one of the way, uh, one of the reasons because of averages being misleaded that I present the data in a full distribution, in this case, a cumulative distribution function. So people can see all of their percentiles. Mm-hmm. And, and that was kind of uh, not so much in the questions, but in a data presentation aspect. So I'm sorry if I'm getting too, too math, mathy or academic there, but I feel like that's a, 
because of my chart and graph, uh, you know, appreciation, I feel like that was kind of an important call. Out. <laughs> yeah, no, when I was writing the blog post uh, on the re- report, kind of giving my own commentary on it, that was actually something I really appreciated is that I could make statements that were more along the lines of 50% of respondents reported spending this much time or more right? Like being able to slice it instead of just saying on average, this much time was spent. It's a much more meaningful figure. Like it's one that actually tells a bit of a story. Yeah. One thing I was thinking about too, uh, with a lot of these questions, it sort of hinges on someone's personal understanding of a term, right? Like we talk a lot about how much of your time is spent on toil. Okay. Well, what is toil? There's like a Google definition. You can define it in the inverse. Oh, it's time not spent on this and this and this. But a lot of people, their feeling of toil is a very much, I know it when I feel it. I know. <laughs> I know I'm doing toil when I feel like I'm doing toil. <laughs> and I think it's quite interesting. Like, again, from marketer to a marketer, I'm often in the position where I'm, I'm writing an article on toil. And then I'm like, okay, how do I evoke in the minds of the readers the idea of toil without having to put such a precise pin on it? that might exclude some people or exclude some experiences. And I think, you know, surveys like this uh, do a lot of work in kind of doing what I would say isn't so prescriptivist. Like, it's not so much trying to delineate what's toil from authority, but more descriptivist that you're giving voice to people to say, I find this, this, and this toilsome. And then that kind of like emerges like a more holistic, better definition. So I'm just kind of curious, like over the years that you've done this, how have you found this sort of language changing? And then how do you kind of balance this? Like, you know, we need to ask the question, but we need to reflect what this means to the readers too. It's another tough one. (laughs) uh, And and I'll offer a couple of um, potential other ways to ask the question you asked is. Sure, sure. The reason I only kindly suggest that is because how much of your work do you consider to be toil is one of our year over year repeated questions. Mm-hmm. So that one almost has to remain verbatim. Mm, that's right. Over to get that consistency. Yeah. Right. To get that consistency, because as you maybe not intentionally alluded to, you change one word. <laughs> it's a completely mm-hmm. different question. It matters a lot. Yeah. But a couple things that kind of came to mind uh, listening to you speak. So Steve McGee, who was kind enough to write this year's report conclusion, it's all his own intellectual property, by the way. Uh, he made some comments about the best way about measuring toil, not trying to like get out a, a, a ruler or a yardstick and be like, oh, it's, you know, three, three point five centimeters today. Or it's like <laughs> the best way is like just to ask the people. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was thing is like when our own HR team sends out the quarterly survey or uh, goodness, hopefully they're not listening and don't know. I forget how frequently they send out the survey, <laughs> but, you know, how likely are you to recommend your company as a place to work? It's like you just directly just ask the question simply. Mm-hmm. Here's the X factor example. Mm-hmm. The question was, how large of a problem is tool sprawl? Mm-hmm. Unlike toil, which had a very black and white definition per the Google handbook, there was no black and white definition for tool sprawl. Mm. This, I think, might be 
at the heart of what you're getting at is that's a prime example where it's like, what does tools brawl mean? And it's like, oh boy, no, Leo, you, you have to ask it and just hope that that this whole law of averages thing <laughs> can be on your side and that if people read the question, they might not think about the definition of that in the same way that you do, which by the way, some people think about it very simply as tool sprawl equals when you have a bunch of tools in your stack. Please, for the love of whatever you believe in, do not think about it like that. <laughs> it's it, not how many tools are in your stack. It's how many tools and their associated costs versus the value received. Mm-hmm. So if you have 10 tools or you have a million tools, if the value you're receiving, regardless of how many tools, is greater than the cost, then you have no tools for all problem. Mm. But so what we did, which is why we do the correlation investigations we do is we broke it down by the other dimensions. So one of the questions was, what's your rank? And when we broke it down by the rank, even though there were gaps between the ranks, you know, I, I forget what the exact numbers were. It's like, you know, so executive said, 78% not at all or minor versus individual practitioner said 58% not at all or minor problem. Mm. Even though there was a delta between them, all of the persona ranks still were on the not at all or mm. minor, right? So that's that's kind of why we decided that it was okay to proceed, even though it might conflict with market hyperbola people had been hearing or reading about over the last year, uh, that when we broke it down, the trends were still the same. So that's kind of the other way we uh, try to validate and make sure that the answers were, the answer data from the survey was worthy enough to go into the the report because because as you kind of infer, sometimes it's it can be trickier, especially if you make a, a human error and people mm. completely misunderstand. <laughs> No, that's the risk you have to run. And and like we know in SRE, there's no 100%. <laughs> you just got to aim for a, a satisfying number of nines, a number of nines that'll get you there. Because yeah, like in the end, it's such a human thing. And I think we can't ever hope to rule out that factor of, you know, people can understand anything to mean anything in the end. <laughs> I found it really interesting, this idea of validation through kind of slicing through the ranks and seeing kind of a consistency, even though there is a delta, there's at least a trend. So thank you so much for talking with me about the process of creating the survey, the findings, and uh, how they kind of speak to the growing and ever-changing culture of SRE. I've been Emily Arnott. My guest has been Leo. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you will look forward to the next episode. Thank you so much for having me and looking forward to speaking again. We hope you've enjoyed your time in the reliability room. Everywhere we look, we see the challenges and value of good reliability. But no matter how you prepare, things will go wrong. Orchestrating your team around incident response is key to making a product users can trust. Automate a seamless incident management process with Blameless, the incident response workflow that keeps your communication and response running smoothly, even when things go wrong. Visit blameless.com slash trial to start your free trial today. That's blameless.com slash trial.